I want to look a little bit at what World War I can teach us uh, about the future of, of, of war and the uh, possibility for peace by looking at the aspects of the legacy of the First World War that are still relevant today and how we've arrived at this point. These, if you like, uh, uh, lessons from the First World War that still have, uh, still have contemporary meaning. And I want to do that just by addressing three points. Uh, the first is to look a little bit at some of the structural uh, security lessons, uh, very briefly, because I know he will be addressing that in more detail in a moment. Um, second, I want to look at the lessons regarding international law, because the First World War is a really key turning point in the idea of putting war within a framework of law and then applying sanctions afterwards uh, within a legal framework as well. And then third, I want to look very briefly at the lessons of the First World War for humanitarianism and the relevance of First World War humanitarianism for uh, the contemporary world as well. So first, to address these issues of uh, security uh, and, and uh, structural uh, issues regarding security. I think one of the key aspects of the First World War, is, and it's very evident, and it's also evident in what uh, Margaret was saying, is that once a war begins, uh, war aims radicalise very rapidly. Even if a war begins from uh, what, what many historians think was an, was an, was an accident in, in 1914, you have a very rapid radicalisation of war aims as one side gains territory and believes that it can then uh, consolidate those positions and perhaps hold on to that territory long term. Uh, the key power there being Germany. One might uh, today consider something similar is happening with regard to Russia. Um, and so these dangers of, of radicalisation around war as a result of initial success in war is something that we see time and time again in wars after the First World War as well. The uh, second aspect of, of, of security that uh, I think is a lesson of the First World War is obviously the danger of alliances and alliance systems. Um, World War I's alliance systems uh, really come out of this, this, uh, this July crisis where the, the, te the attempt to arbitrate is really hampered by the power of alliances. And we see this kind of alliance systems blocking moves towards peace, towards arbitration, continuing to the present day uh, very clearly uh, with regard to Syria uh, and, and Russia's stance on Syria. And in, in some ways, the foundation of NATO was meant to provide an, a better form of alliance system to solve these kinds of old problems with older alliance systems, um, and that this would somehow surpass the difficulties of flawed alliances and give a, 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 a more effective use of alliances uh, to provide a better uh, global security. And to some extent, it, it, has, it has done that. But for the future, we have to ask how long uh, that, will, uh, that will actually uh, continue to succeed. The First World War also marked a shift from a balance of power system for maintaining peace in Europe. So the idea of a kind of, a set, a set, almost, it can almost be summed up as a kind of idea of harmony, uh, a concert, if you like, uh, taking kind of musical analogy, which was the term that was used, the concert of Europe, whereby no one power gained too much uh, strength uh, in comparison to the others. And the First World War is a shift from this balance of power system uh, for maintaining peace to a concept of collective security after the war, epitomised very much by the League of Nations, and later, uh, to some extent, uh, transferred into the idea of the UN. Now, collective security at a global level has not really worked particularly well. It was not effective for China or Ethiopia in the interwar period, uh, and it was not really effective for European powers either with the rise of fascism. And one does have to actually have to ask to what extent the French and the British ever really bought into it because they, they placed their imperial uh, systems first as their main, their main source of security came from their empires. So collective security was always very much a second, uh, a second string uh, for them and something that really, because of that imperial system that coexisted with it, never really uh, got off the ground in the interwar period. 
And today, uh, one sees similar problems with an, a, a language of collective security that still exists. It's used to some extent regarding the, 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 the invasion of Kuwait in the 1990s as a justification, the idea that, we, uh, that the, the West must uh, act as a, as a collective to ensure global security against an aggressor power. Um, very much a rhetorical device in that case. Um, and it's, it, it, it's, 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 it's very much something that at a global level has not really, uh, has not really delivered and is probably a naive uh, concept uh, in many ways. Um, if one uh, considers the European case, however, Europe uh, embedded the idea of collective security within supranational structures after the Second World War. So that's very much where European integration uh, took on the, some of the more concretizing aspects of how collective security would operate uh, at a regional level. And in that regard, it has delivered. Uh, and one can see that these kinds of sub supranational structures, which to some extent, for some of the, 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 the key states involved in European integration, were meant to lead to a fed, more federalised system of defence and foreign policy, and um, have created a sense whereby we have this sense today that European powers going to war with each other is somehow uh, an impossibility. And one does have this very important uh, caveat uh, in, in, contemporary, uh, in the contemporary news of the example of Ukraine, where, again, a rhetoric of collective security when Ukraine gave up its nuclear uh, armaments uh, has ultimately failed. Uh, one of the protector powers was meant to be Russia, uh, and we've all seen where that's led to. So this problem of, collect of, of shifting from a system of balance of power to a system of collective security is one that I think is still something that, that societies are struggling with uh, today. And the problem of trying to embed collective security within supranational uh, institutions is, is, is very much a fundamental uh, issue that comes out of the First World War and that we are continuing uh, to try and, and work with. The idea is supranational institutions will, will provide the framework that disappears in a war conflict when the nation-state structure collapses because of the stresses of war. That those supranational institutions like the European, uh, European Court uh, of, of Human Rights, like the European Union, will give a, a balance that, uh, that, that, that then provides a legal framework beyond the nation-state and prevents uh, violence uh, uh, moving into, uh, into a situation of vacuum where it always becomes more radical and more dangerous. The final key aspect of uh, security that I want to mention is the problem of international arbitration. And this, again, uh, the, the arbitration is something that, as Margaret has mentioned, predates the First World War. It's very much in vogue in the late 19th century. Um, the First World War shows its limits and leads to a crisis in understanding of how arbitration can operate. Um, it is virtually impossible to establish peace negotiations while the conflict is ongoing during the First World War. There are a few attempts, they're very weak. There is no system in place to really allow for that. And neutral states are not able to, to really facilitate that. And post-war, there's a shift to try and bring in an, a number of arbitration mechanisms, um, not just in terms of uh, international conflict, but also even in terms of the International Labour Organization, in terms of trying to create a system wh whereby humans resolve their problems through arbitration mechanisms. And they don't really work. Um, after the Second World War, there are more effective systems put in place, more effective uh, institutions. But we still have this problem of how does one establish uh, functioning methods of arbitration during, uh, during conflicts when uh, both sides simply will not uh, come to the table, simply refuse, uh, refuse to talk or refuse to negotiate. And one of the other aspects of arbitration, however, where we have seen some progress, is the economic. That's the one area where the First World War does leave a legacy that actually is more positive regarding arbitration. Um, if one looks at what happens to Austria after the First World War, the initial uh, League of Nations bailout of Austria that's not very well known, uh, that's been worked on by Patricia Clavin, 
here at Oxford, is a template for what then happens after the Second World War with the foundation of the IMF and more modern forms of bailout that arguably have prevented a much greater crisis in Europe in the last five years than could have been the case. Uh, so the economic legacy of arbitration from the First World War is more positive, uh, but the international arbitration of conflict legacy of the First World War is unfortunately uh, quite an incomplete and I would argue negative one. To move to the next uh, section, uh, international law, the next key point I want, to, I want to make about the legacies of the First World War, um, international law in the First World War really faces its, it, it, what, what one would term it, its absolute greatest test to, uh, to, to date at that point. Total war poses an enormous challenge uh, for those people from the late 19th century who have been quite naive about how international law could maybe moderate conflicts. However, the First World War introduces the idea of the importance of legal sanctions within a legal framework uh, for war crimes. And that is a really valuable legacy. Um, the idea that there are laws of war and, and for them to be viable, there must be sanctions in place to enforce them is a World War I idea. The idea that there's international law is a late 19th century idea, international laws of war. But the sanctions element comes with the First World War. And the idea that those who commit war crimes should be punished legally uh, within some kind of international uh, court system. Now, you don't get an international court system after the First World War. It's simply talked about by people like Robert Cecil. But the, 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 the germ of the idea is there. Uh, and it's there in Article 228 of the Treaty of Versailles. Ultimately, you end up with national war crimes trials after the First World War at Leipzig and also failed trials regarding Ottoman war criminals as well. Um, but after, after 1945, the, the germ really uh, the, of the idea really develops uh, into what we know today, ultimately, is the International Criminal Court. And we've seen with the uh, International Tribunal for uh, former Yugoslavia, um, we've seen with the, the trials uh, for, for Rwanda, real progress, real moving forward. Uh, and that, it, that ultimately stems from some of these ideas uh, that came out of the First World War. And post-Cold War, this idea of, of, of putting a legal framework of sanctions in place uh, to deal with uh, the, the post-war post moment, which is a particularly difficult moment, to re-establish peace um, has really, uh, I think, become embedded at a global level. You see it in many, many, many uh, post-conflict situations today. It's not simply a European or a Western idea. It really has borne fruit and has been successful. Um, the, the First World War also shows the importance of neutrality as a concept. Um, and that's something that obviously right from the invasion of Belgium at the start is one of the central debates of the war. What protections should be given to neutral states? It's then transferred into the debate around the blockade. What protections should be given to the trade of neutral states in a situation where belligerents are clashing uh, in what was then trade by sea, or what, what today we might see as in, uh, international global trade more generally? And this question of neutrality, how it's respected, um, how it's protected in a legal framework in international law is another fundamental and very powerful legacy of the First World War because ultimately the First World War does, to some extent, validate neutrality. Sure, Belgium doesn't get much at the peace conference, but the idea that neutral states have the right to be respected uh, comes out of the First World War. It's challenged time and time again, but it doesn't disappear and it doesn't evaporate. It remains a very strong legal concept uh, and an important one. The final aspect of law and international law in the First World War and legacies for, for, for the contemporary world is the idea of outlawing war. This is a very popular idea in the wake of the First World War, the idea that you can somehow 
legally um, uh, legislate war out of existence, make it illegal, uh, and use these positive aspects of legal frameworks to control war through the laws of war, to punish war criminals through courts uh, after wars, and to try and uh, place war within a legal framework, to actually ultimately get rid of war altogether. Um, and this was quite an idealist position of lawyers after the war. It doesn't work. This is the one area where international law, I think, doesn't leave us a positive legacy from the First World War because you end up with the 1928 Kellogg Briand Pact, which ultimately is signed by a, a, a really large number of, 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 of countries and doesn't doesn't hold up at all. It's impossible to enforce. It's completely disrespected by uh, by, by Germany, uh, most, for the most notorious example. Um, and it ultimately looks terribly naive to us today. Its only value is that it's used after the Second World War to, as the legal basis for punishing uh, German aggressive foreign policy in causing the Second World War. So it's useful in terms of giving, uh, giving a legislative framework for those post-45 uh, uh, trials, but it is not actually useful in terms of outlawing war. So do I see the chance of legislating war out of existence? No. But do I think that a legal framework in terms of uh, preventing wars going to the extremes of violence and in terms of uh, intimidating uh, leaders into respecting laws of war during a conflict because they know they may get punished after a conflict should they lose, um, as effective? Yes. Finally, humanitarianism. And I'm almost at time, so that, that's ideal. Um, the First World War sees a shift uh, with regard to humanitarianism, from a language of kind of moral obligation to help war victims based on religious or uh, late 19th century um, uh, uh, socialist ideals, to a new rhetoric of human rights, the idea that actually there is a, 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 some kind of legal obligation to assist civilians. And this has been worked on by Bruno Caban in particular. And it's the idea that, that in fact, um, it, it's not simply some kind of individual moral obligation to give to charitable donation to assist war victims, as is seen at the start of the war, but by, by the end of the war, there's actually the obligation of states, uh, there's actually welfare obligations, and there's actually legal obligations to provide uh, for war victims, and that victims have rights. That's a very important legacy for the rest of the 20th century. And we see it particularly uh, developing in the 1970s with, the, uh, with international laws to protect refugees who have been neglected, uh, actually, uh, until that period. Uh, the Geneva Conventions, primarily in the late 20s, focus on uh, 1929 as prisoners of war, uh, and 49 as civilians in, 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 in wartime situations. Refugees as a concept and a category comes much later. But all of that comes out of this shift during World War I to the idea of human rights uh, in conflict situations, the idea of actu actual rights that are, uh, are non-transferable, that, uh, that, that, are, that are universal, and that, um, that, that the victims of war uh, can, can call upon. Um, the, the other key aspect of humanitarianism in the First World War is it highlights the value of neutral aid systems. This is where we get the idea of neutral NGOs, um, international, supranational, uh, 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 and international uh, aid systems. The International Red Cross really develops, the International Committee of the Red Cross really develops out of the First World War as an international institution. Before that, it has been a very small organization. It's really very much a Swiss-based organization, and national Red Cross groups are not entirely uh, um, uh, subordinate or very closely affiliated with it. It's the First World War that creates this idea of it ha as the kind of neutral, key, world-leading arbiter, which remains with us to this day. 
Um, and similarly, the idea of, 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 of neutral states providing aid to the victims of war uh, in an organized and sophisticated manner comes out of the First World War. If we look at the, the feeding program organized by Herbert Hoover by the Americans to feed the population of Belgium in the First World War, in 1915, the Americans are effectively feeding Belgian civilians uh, under German occupation, which is a very ruthless economic exploitation of Belgium. And this is, this is a very positive legacy of the First World War, this power of neutral states to assist um, and to assist also prisoners of war as protecting powers, which then becomes part of international law in the 1929 Geneva Convention. The prisoners of war will have a neutral state which acts on their behalf uh, should they uh, need to, to complain uh, and to inspect their treatment uh, in the state which has captured them. And that system still works to this day. So these ideas that neutrals can somehow de-escalate violence by intervening, by providing accurate information about what conditions are like in prisoner of war camps, what conditions are like for civilian victims of war, by providing food aid, um, are powerfully brought to the fore during the First World War. There's huge advances made, made in those systems, and those systems are put in place. Um, and those are the, the more positive legacies of, of, of the war. We do get a very modern form of humanitarianism emerging out of it, which is a response to the violence and the horrors of that conflict, but which ultimately gives us today, uh, I think, some, 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 some food for optimism regarding future wars, because humanitarianism really has become uh, something that, 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 that that, that, that goes in many ways, from, uh, I think, from strength to strength in conflict situations. We do see now, again, a global understanding of the concept and a global um, recognition of the value of neutrality of NGOs. Uh, it's always very difficult to implement on the ground. I don't want to sound naive about it, but the fact that it's still with us 100 years after 1914, I think, says something about its importance. Thank you. Thank you.